What's up, church? Happy Sunday. Can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. So uh, many, many years ago, I heard a story about um, two uh, ships that were at sea, and the captains uh, saw the trajectory of their, uh, of their vessel's path, and they decided to begin to communicate with one another. And one of the captains, uh, as it became apparent that they were heading um, towards uh, the same place, said, hey, you need to alter your course. And uh, which the response of the other captain was, no, if anybody's going to alter their course, you're going to alter the course. And for a couple of hours, they banter back and forth, both captains refusing to maneuver their vessel to where it would alter course. And in their prideful stubbornness, maybe you want to say arrogance, these two ships collide at sea. And it was because two captains would not relent in their pride and their arrogance and their hostility towards one another. Both of them, as captains of their ship, had to be right. Now, this wasn't just a story, actually. This is a story that actually happened in uh, March uh, 13th of 1986. Two Soviet captains in the Black Sea decided that they would not alter course. Uh, In the LA newspapers in 1986, an article I read this week said... The, the weather was good, it was sunny, it was not overcast, and there were moderate winds. The challenge was, as you had two captains that would not relent on their course. 398 people die as a result of the accident, and two captains are thrown in jail. Friends, isn't it a terrible thing what arrogance and pride can do in our lives? And that's what we're going to talk about today. In Proverbs chapter 30, a guy named Agur, an unsuspecting character uh, that writes in the Bible, gives us hindsight, or for what many of us would say is, is foresight. He tells us, hey, here's the way of man. If you will do these things, you will live. You will, in a sense, be prosperous. You will live under the banner of God. You can have a life that keeps yourself from falsehood and lies and deceit. Uh, You can uh, build your house on a firm foundation of truth. And it's really our choice. And Agur just walks us through just this principles of character and godliness and what it looks like to live with sound doctrine and teaching. As you get to uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 through 23, you've got Agur, and he's going to say a handful of things that are a little bit unsuspecting, a little bit difficult to even understand. And so we're going to walk through those today. As we dive into Proverbs chapter 30, if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll turn there. If you don't have a Bible today on either of our campuses, we would love to bless you with one. All you got to do is go to our connection point on both campuses, and we would love to hook you up with a new Bible, which you can use to read on a daily basis. For those that are joining us on Online. We're glad you're with us. And those that are in Edgewood, hey, we're glad you're here. Uh, let's dive into Proverbs chapter 30, beginning with verse 18. Agur says, there are three things that are too wonderful for me. This is a, um, a phrase that you're going to see uh, over and over again in this chapter. He goes on to say, there are four that I do not understand. At first, it's kind of this poetic imagery, but it also seems that as Agur is writing down the words inspired and given to him by the Holy Spirit, it's as if he has uh, these things that are kind of jostling around his mind. He goes, there, there are three things. No, wait, there are four things that are too wonderful for me to understand. And you'll see him say something similar again in a few moments. And then he tells us what those things are. In verse 19, he says, there's the way of the eagle in the sky. There's the way of the serpent or the snake on a rock. There's the way of a ship on the high seas. And there's the way of a man 
with a virgin. Or it may say a, a maid, or it may even say woman. But the idea is there are four things that are natural parts of life. You have an eagle in the sky. You have um, uh, a serpent or a snake slithering around the, lo- the rocks. You have the, the boats in the seas. And he goes, and you've got young men who fall in love with young women. And in turn, young women who fall in love with young men. And you see these natural parts of life, and in in a lot of ways, you look at them and you go, how do those even happen? Like, how does that come to be? And I would say that if if you're not eager, you probably haven't thought a whole lot about it. I can never uh, think back in a time in my life that I've wondered about the eagle in the sky or the snake slithering on the ground. I've never thought about, hey, I wonder how incredible this thing is that two ships pass through the seas. You just don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. But here it is, this, this man, Agur, has not only thought about these things, but he goes, these are, these are wonderful ideas. These are things that are natural parts of life. And as you begin to think about them, you think in some ways they're almost a little bit tied together. They're somewhat untraceable. They're, they're somewhat difficult to understand. Like, how is it that the process of a, a man falling in love with a woman, how does that happen? And, and if you begin to really think about that, you go, it's too complex to really understand. And he goes, these are lofty ideas. But what's incredible is he takes the natural parts of life and then it seems to be that he begins to connect it with the following verses. And in verse 19, this is what it says. um, As he moves from the way of the eagle, the way of the serpent, the high seas, the man with the woman, verse 20, he says this, the way of the adulteress. And then he says this, she eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. And you're like, What? I mean, as you read this, you're like, okay, so we, we go from talking about eagles and ships and, and young men and young women and what that looks like to an adulteress. And what he seems to be correlating together is that what happens in verse 20 is as natural as the eagle in the sky or the snake on the ground. He goes, what an adulteress will oftentimes do is she eats and wipes her mouth. She will fail to see that she has done any wrong. It seems to be a natural part of what happens in a woman's life when she, or let me just add, a man's life when they step out of their marriage in adulterous ways. We, in some ways, what we'll do is we'll play it off or we'll come up with excuses or we'll find ways to, in some ways, indulge in our appetite with little or no guilt. And he goes, that's what I'm talking about. These things that seem to be natural, that's natural to the animals, can be natural to us. And then in verse 21, he goes on. He goes, under the earth, there are things that tremble, right? And he goes, there are three things that as the earth trembles. Nope, he goes, under four, it cannot bear. So this poetic imagery again, he goes, no, let me give you four things. And then here's what he says. The natural parts of life in some ways lead to the adulterer but it also leads to the folly and the foolishness of other men and situations like this. So he gives you the example in verse 20 of the adulterous woman, and then 21 through 23, he gives you a handful of more examples. He goes, there's a slave when he becomes king. And I can't help but think about Jafar overcoming the sultan. You, you see how that happens. He goes, there's a fool when he is filled with food. There's an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And there's a maidservant when she displaces or overcomes 
even her mistress. And in some ways, what you see is you see the arrogant folly that follows things that, that seem to happen in our lives. When uh, some, some things that, that progress and happen. And here's what I would tell you. That as you read through this passage, what Agar seems to be implying in verses 18 through 23 is there are some natural things that happen in mankind. And one of the most natural proponents of a man's life or things that come in our life result from pride and folly and foolishness. And he goes, and those are things that kind of come natural to us. Like just as the eagle and the ships move about in the sea, as the snake slithers around the ground, as a young man falls in love with a virgin girl, those things are as natural as, a, as the foolishness of an adulteress, as a servant overcoming its master, as a, as a maid overcoming its mistress. In some ways, what it's revealing is Romans 3.10 that there is no one that is righteous, not even one. It's revealing to us Romans 3.23, and that is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's revealing to us Jeremiah 17.9, that our hearts are deceitful, that they're desperately sick. Who can understand it? That in our natural progression of life, that we are prideful, that we seem to be arrogant, and that we seem to think that we have things done on our own. And I would say that many of us in this room probably wouldn't say that I'm arrogant and prideful. You would probably not say that you detest God uh, with lying lips. You probably wouldn't recognize some of the prideful things. And very few of you came in today going, you know what, this message isn't going to apply to me because I, I got my life together. Like that doesn't happen usually. But the reality is, is that in our natural flesh, that is, as Paul says, Romans 7, 19, there is nothing good that lives in me, meaning in his flesh, apart from God, we are prone to be stubborn, foolish, and arrogant. Listen, there is not a difference in our lives than two Russian captains when we are following in our flesh apart from God. We are arrogant, we are prideful, and even though we are guiding the ship of our life, we are prone to lead it into a place of destruction. Reminds me of Cody's writing even yesterday morning about a captain and his arrogance as he continues to go driving his, his, his um, boat right in to an iceberg. That's arrogance. It's folly. That's what Agar seems to be pointing to. Matter of fact, as we think about the dangers of it, I'm reminded of Proverbs 16, 18, which simply says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A um, couple chapters over, Proverbs 21, 20, uh, 24 says, A scoffer is the name of the arrogant. It's one in, in some ways who he scoffs at. I mean, he's got it together. It's a captain scoffing at another. He goes, They're a haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Psalm 101.5 says this, Whoever slanders his neighbor, uh, neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. So he goes, haughtiness or pridefulness or self-sufficiency. He goes, it's an arrogance that, that the Lord detests. He goes, I can't even endure it. In Psalm 138.6, he says it this way, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. And then look what it says, but the haughty he knows from afar. It seems to be that even our pride keeps us from approaching the throne of grace. That in some ways we are knowing God from afar and that he is distancing himself from us. Isaiah 2, 11 speaks of the day of the Lord. And Isaiah is, is 
the prophet is telling the people of Israel, he goes, The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idea is that when the day of the Lord comes, that those who are arrogant, who are haughty, that are proud, who think that they have their life together and that they don't need a Savior will be brought low. That you cannot claim to know God and love God and walk in arrogance and foolishness because that's not what our Savior possesses. Our Savior did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to be brought low. Amen? He humbled himself. He was a humble servant. He says, that is what you should look for. As I think about this passage in Proverbs 30, and I think about the ways of mankind in our sin problem, in our natural flesh, it reminds me of Proverbs chapter 6. Now, Proverbs chapter 6 is packed full of great things that would help prevent foolishness, folly, and arrogance in our life. And I can't read the entire chapter and us get out in a decent time today. And so I'm just going to read a handful of verses from chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. And even as you move down to 16, uh, all the way to now, uh, through 19, the author is talking about seven abominations that are brought before the Lord. Uh, he goes, well, there's six. And then he goes, no, nope, there's seven abominations. And then he lists those out. You know what the number one abomination that he lists is in, in verse 16 is haughty eyes or a proud or arrogant heart. He goes, it cannot be that you claim to know God and you are prideful or arrogant or you're foolish. And so in Proverbs 6, 12 through 15, a few verses before uh, he makes that statement, this is what it says. It says a worthless person, if you want to change the word worthless to a fool, or someone who possesses arrogance or folly. Um, he goes, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with a perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. And then it says this, an amazing word in verse 15. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. His ship will collide at sea because of his arrogance. And in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. It reminds me of the day of the Lord that uh, Isaiah speaks to. Because of his foolishness, because of his pride, because of his haughty spirit, he will come to a reckoning. And God will say, depart from me for I never knew you. Because God sees our rebellious, hard-hearted arrogance. He would even say something that the Lord sees us from afar, like Psalm 138 said. The reality is, is that Agur and the Proverbs and the Psalms and our Bible is warning us gently that we need to beware of a haughty spirit lest we fall. Now, here's the deal. All of us in here would say, I don't think that I'm that arrogant. I mean, I get the way of the eagle and I, like, I know that I'm prone to, to do something stupid. I'm prone to leave the God I love, but I wouldn't call myself prideful or arrogant. Or if spe- uh, people were to speak to you know, about you in, in the streets or at the city gates, they may not say that, hey, this person's prideful or arrogant. And here's what I would say. If I uh, were to talk to you or have you cross-examine my life, I would say you might say something similar about me, that you would naturally say, oh, he's prideful or rebellious or he's a fool or he's arrogant in all that he does. I don't think that I've just snubbed people or put my nose up at them. I don't see that um, from as, as far as you projected onto me. But here's what I want you to realize is that as the Proverbs talk and even Proverbs 6, 12 through 15 I think there are subtle ways that pride and arrogance manifest itself in our lives that if we're not careful, 
we won't pay attention to them. And so, listen, this list is not exhaustive, but I want you to just think about Proverbs 30 that we've read, the natural way of man apart from God. I want you to think about Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, and all of these things come from that, those passages. And there's just four of them today. I'm sure that one of your homework assignments this week could be to add to this list as it pertains to you and maybe your pridefulness or your arrogance in your life or your folly, uh, because I think that we could build a case that there's way more than just four. But here's four that I recognize in the scriptures, and I would say even in my own life at times. And so here's four subtle ways that arrogance manifests itself in our lives, and I would say that keeps God at a distance. Uh, that in some ways, it, it, it removes our fellowship and in some ways quenches the Spirit of God. And I would say the number one way um, is a critical spirit. If you remind yourself of uh, Proverbs 6 verse 12, it just says that uh, a man in his foolishness has crooked speech. The idea of crooked speech could be uh, manifested in lots of different ways. Um, obviously, you could think, oh, gossip or slanderer. Um, you could think about maliciousness or any of those intentional things like that with your words. I think about James 3 and about the foolishness of our tongue and how it can set a forest ablaze. I think about those things. But one of the things that I think is really subtle in my own life is just going about grumbling and complaining. You think about grumbling and complaining, that seems to be what's so natural to all of us. Like in our natural flesh, we get out of bed and we grumble and complain. We grumble and complain because there's not enough creamer in our coffee, that we're not going to have a good hair day, that our coworkers are texting us too early in the morning. They're already blowing up our phones. I'm not even to work yet. You get to work and you're frustrated at everybody there. Your boss didn't let you know something. Now you're not flexible. And it just seems to manifest itself throughout the day. And we grumble and complain about our yard not being mowed correctly. They missed a spot weed eating. And we just go about over and over and over in some ways grumbling and complaining. We're critical spirits. Like we see negative in everything. And though while we don't oftentimes recognize it, if you were to ask somebody who was close to you, they might say, yes, you do seem to have a critical spirit. You seem to go about grumbling and complaining a lot. I think that's why Paul writes to the church of Philippi in Philippians 2, and he just encourages them, mind you, after he talks about Jesus being um, this great servant, um, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, he gives himself as a servant. Um, he tells us in verse 4 and 5, they have the attitude of Christ, consider others better than ourselves. You get down lower in that chapter, this is what he says, and you should do all things without grumbling. All things. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I think I'm winning in a day if I do some things without grumbling and complaining. Can I get an amen? But he's going, don't do all things without grumbling and complaining. I'm like, well, it's hard for me not to grumble and complain over somebody's stupidity. Like when, I, when, when you do something that's stupid or like you know you should have done it this way, like it's hard for me to have sympathy, to empathize with people, which is one of the reasons that I don't have a spiritual gift of mercy. It's like I have a hard time being merciful on something that you continue to do over and over again. And so I find myself oftentimes grumbling and complaining about somebody that continues to find themselves in the same manure pile. The challenge is, is like, hey, why are you in the manure pile in the first place? And why do you continue to go back to it? You know it stinks. Why do we have to go over this over and over again? Is there, and I find myself, though, grumbling and complaining. I just get to a place in my own life where I become very critical Paul goes on and he says, the reason we don't grumble and complain is that we might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
He goes, the reason why that you don't grumble and complain that you're not a critical spirit is because in many ways you identify that in your natural flesh, just as the eagle soars in the sky and boats progress along the seas, that in your natural flesh you are bent to to be critical because that's who you are. But in the Spirit of God, he goes, you should put those things away. Even as simple, something as simply as grumbling and complaining, you should put that away simply because you are to be blameless and innocent. He says that in many ways that our grumbling and our complaining, our critical spirit can detract away from God's work in our life. Why? Because as people look on our lives, they don't see holiness. They don't see growth and progression. They see a bitter old Christian. And he goes, those things don't really seem to work. And even Agar goes, just as the woman who's an adulterer licks her lips and goes, what have I done wrong? A Christian, if not careful, can look upon somebody else's foolishness and say, I'm so right, they're so wrong that in a critical spirit, they don't shine like lights in the world. He goes, you just have to be careful of that. Uh, Peter says this way, he goes, we ought to show hospitality to one another with, without grumbling. See, the point of all of this is that I think about my critical spirit and I know where it's birthed from. I am more critical when I spend less time with Jesus than I should. So as I elevate myself as a Christian, I find myself needing less of God. I find myself needing more of me. And listen, friends, lean in with me real quick. When you and I don't daily abide with the Lord in his scriptures, what we are telling God is that we don't need him. We are in essence saying, I don't need your truth. I don't need your spirit. I don't need your guidance. I got this thing and I'm just fine. And listen, there's a myriad of excuses and there's a myriad of things that we find ourselves doing other than spending time in God's word. But when we don't spend time in God's word, in many ways, we are becoming prideful and arrogant, and it leads to irritation, frustration, and judgment upon others. When you see me being more critical, it's because I'm not daily reminding myself of the gospel. Now, let me tell you something real quickly, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. You and I need the gospel as much as our lost friends. So yeah, we tell people about the gospel, but listen, you need to remind yourself about the gospel every single day. Because if you don't remind yourself about the gospel every single day, you'll become prideful and arrogant and foolish. And the way of the eagle will become your way, what's most natural to you. And you know what's natural to you? Is to make you the God of your own life. But let's just be honest. We don't make very good gods. And we will drive our ship into an iceberg or into some other ship namely a person, and which wreaks havoc and danger and destruction. Critical spirits keep us far from God. But it's not just critical spirits, it's also blame shifting, which I think kind of go hand in hand. When I become critical, I also begin to blame more and more. Um, I call this BS. Um, It's just blame shifting. It's verse 13. You wink your eyes, you signal your feet, you point with your finger. Um, It could be, hey, you go do this and I tell you what to do. It could be that. Or it can also be, hey, don't look at me, look at them. The reality is, is that you'll notice that in our lives, if we do what's natural to us, we rarely take the blame on our own. 
rarely do we have the attitude that the buck stops here. I would say even in leadership, it's really challenging oftentimes to to take the weight of what's happening. A lot of times it's easier to kind of detract and send that here and there and to blame others for what's happening in our lives. It's it's easy to blame others for what's happening in our marriage and our parenting. It's oftentimes easier to say, well, it's our kids. They don't get it. Um, it's easier to, in some ways, do what's most natural to us. And what's most natural to us in our critical spirit, in our pride, our foolishness, and our arrogance, is to point the finger at somebody else. And one of the reasons that we oftentimes have very difficult workplaces is because we think the problem with our workplace is everybody but us. We think that's true in our marriage, that the problem in our marriage is our spouse can't get their stuff together. And I think we live in a place like that. And can I just tell you that that you're not alone in that? Like you're not the only one that blame shifts. Um, You're not the only one that struggles with this. I would say it is a sign of who we are naturally. Just as a snake slithers along, along the rocks, just as a young man falls in love with a young girl, the most natural part of us is to blame shift. It happened a long time ago, and it's been spiraling downhill ever since. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent goes to the Garden of Eden, a place of delight. It was heavenly. And uh, he accuses um, these two individuals, Adam and Eve. Um, he goes, hey, surely um, you guys don't want to continue to serve this God who's keeping good things from you. Like, you know he doesn't want you to eat of the fruit he told you about, right? I mean, because you know that if you ate of it, you'd be like God, and you'd know all that he knows. And they become intrigued with the idea, and they begin to think about it. Um, Adam clearly knew of the prohibition given to him in Genesis chapter 2. Namely, possibly even before Eve was created, he was instructed not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent shows up. They begin to have a conversation. They find themselves with fruit in their hand, and you see that Adam... Um, or that Eve takes a bite and then hands it to her husband, in which we know that he also takes a bite. God then comes into the garden. And he goes, hey guys, where are you? Um, they, they come back and they're like, hey, we're, we're in hiding. They've gone, they've hidden from God. And the reason they've hidden from him is because they realized they were naked. And they go, well, why? God goes, why are you hiding? They go, well, because we're naked. Who told you you were naked? Well, like we just, you know, like we just figured it out. Yeah, I bet you did. Number one sign that, that, that they're not following God, then look what happens next. In Genesis chapter 3, God goes to them and goes, hey, talk to me what happens. And look at Adam's response in verse 12. The man said, meaning Adam, he goes, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault. Like, I mean, listen, God, like I was just in the garden and I mean, the, 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 the snake, the serpent, I mean, he came along and he, he, he tempted her. And I mean, and I, I mean, I don't know. She just gave it to me and I ate. I didn't ask a lot of questions because I trust her. And here it is. They're, they're in foolishness and folly and this arrogance led itself to blame shifting. And even Adam, the one who understood the prohibition from God, do not eat from this tree. Instead of saying, God, you told me not to eat of it, and it's my fault. I shouldn't have done it. Instead of owning it, he passed the buck. And listen, ever since, we've been making jokes about Eve. But can I just tell you that the clear prohibition was given to a man who abdicated his responsibility. And listen, every single time we blame shift, we are reminded that in our natural flesh, we abdicate and we blame shift what's rightfully ours to own. And it happens all the time. 
And here's where it's rooted, I think, is in self-protection. Like, we don't want to look bad. We're people pleasers. We're going to act like our, our lives are together. If it's not rooted in self-protection and we want to look good, it's oftentimes rooted in self-pity. Whatever it is, we know that in its natural place, it's not what God desires, particularly if we would claim to know Him and want to walk in the Spirit. And so listen, critical spirit and blame shifting are two places in which if we're not careful, we will give way to almost every day in our lives in subtle ways. Friends, as a believer in Christ, you can take the heat, you can own your sin, you can confess your foolishness because Christ has redeemed it and He loves you in spite of the moronic type things you've done. Like invent words like moronic. Amen? But you see that a critical spirit and blame shifting, they've got to come from a place of somewhere. Where do they come from? I think they come from not just what's natural to us, but what's most natural to me is my self-centeredness. In Proverbs chapter 12, as the writer is, is writing, I mean, in Proverbs chapter 6, that verse 14, he just says, it's a perverted heart that devises evil. And you might wonder, well, does my perverted heart really devise evil? And I would say, well, I guess it depends. Um, do you think that two men in 1986 expected to be arrested a week later because of their foolishness and arrogance to not redirect their ships? And I would say, no. But what led to it? It was their selfishness. It was their, their inability to reconcile their heart and mind together and say, we're going to cause a lot of destruction. We're going to cost a lot of people pain and livelihood. James writes to the issue, the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Look what he says. He goes, what causes fights and quarrels among us? Hey, what is it that causes two ships to collide? What causes two marriages to end in divorce? Hey, what causes um, bosses in the workplace to collide with um, their subordinates? What causes all those things? He goes, don't you know? Is it not this, that it's your passions? If you want to, to use the word in the Greek there, um, passions could also be selfishness there. The reality is, he goes, those are the things that are at war within you. And then he says this, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend it on your passions. This word in the Greek, hadone, you see it twice right here in these first verses. He goes, what causes fights, quarrels, calamity? He goes, it's your arrogance. Your arrogance is birthed out of your selfishness and your passions, which are waging war in your soul. He goes, that's the challenge. And he goes, those don't just affect other people. It even affects your relationship with the Lord. Look at verse three. He goes, you ask and you don't receive. And then he tells you why. Because you ask wrongly so that you would spend it on your passions. So what we in essence do as blame shifters, as critical spirits, as people who are totally selfish walking in our flesh, we come to God and we go, God, can you fix all these things in my life? Hey, can you, can you get rid of this person? Like, like, it would be helpful if like, you just moved them to Antarctica or something because they're a thorn in my flesh. Uh, like you could be praying things and then you go, well, why does it ever happen in our life? And here's why. Because God refuses to answer the prayer of self-centeredness. Why? Because a God who is not self-centered but servant-minded cannot answer the prayers of a wicked uh, servant who in many ways spends all his time or her time praying about her own grumblings and complainings, self-centered folly, arrogance, and blame-shifting. 
He only answers according to His will, His good word, to servants in humble, contrite ways who acknowledge the error of their sin, that admit their fleshly desires, and come to Him with reliance upon a holy God. One of the reasons your prayer life stinks is because you're self-centered. It really comes down to an abiding issue. Just as we were talking about um, a second ago, the grumbling and complaining side of things, one of the abiding issues is in 1 John. Uh, John, the apostle, um, he doesn't only give us a chapter on it in John chapter 15, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he goes, hey, you want to you abide? You want to you wanna see what that looks like? He goes, hey, then if you're abiding, then you ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. He goes, you ought to look the same. You ought to, in a sense, manifest to others what he has manifested to yourself. The question is, is why is it that wars and fights and quarrels are started? Because, because it's us. We're selfish beings. And listen, can I just tell you that as I have been walking through just a very handful of weeks as I'm uh, preparing to train some men and, and lead some men in region, uh, the Lord's been teaching me already in just four weeks. One of the things, the major factors he's taught me is my selfishness. I, I admitted uh, to Regen and to my journey group and to some other people in my group, like I see selfishness even as I fix two cups of coffee. I fix two cups of coffee. One of those cups of coffee looks a little better. And I am prone to go, I'm going to give her... And I'm like, think about this. I'm your pastor. How sick is that? <laughs> and it's a cup of coffee. You know it's got to manifest itself in much farther, bigger ways, right? That are more sick and that are, that are more detestable to the Lord, which is the reason I have to acknowledge how foolish and selfish and arrogant I am. I'm so prideful and I need the God of, of the Bible to change my heart. See, I happen to believe that Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Brandon who strengthens me. <laughs> now, that's not what I would say, and you wouldn't either, right? I can do all things through God who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me. And we say that with our lips. If we're, if we're not careful, our hearts are far from God. Our, our, our prayers are hindered, and we're self-centered in all our ways. And friends, we have to be careful. Why? Because as you continue to read Proverbs chapter 12, it's not just a perverted heart that divides the evil and manifests itself in a variety of ways, but it also says in the latter part of verse 14, and you'll go about continually sowing discord. Now, when you think about sowing discord, I want you to realize that when you sow seed, you do it intentionally, right? I mean, you think about the Old Testament and a farmer sowing seed. If you were to go and scatter seed in the garden, you do that intentionally. You place seed where you want it to go. And when you sow discord, you do it intentionally. Now, it might be subtle in a lot of ways because discord comes from a critical spirit. Discord comes from self-centeredness. Discord comes from blame shifting. Discord, a lack of unity, comes when all those other things manifest themselves in our lives. The way of the eagle is to fly. The way of man is to go about in factions and quarrels and fights, wreaking havoc, making yourself the king of your own life, and wrecking the lives of anyone else who gets in your way. Jesus flips that on its head, though, and says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus wrecks the principle of you being the king of your life and you sowing discord. Instead of us sowing conflict and gossip, we should sow peace. We ought to, Romans 12, 18, live at peace with all men as much as possible. We ought to abide in the fruits of the Spirit. 
that Galatians 5 tells us about, which means we wage war in our flesh and we don't gratify the desires of our own fleshly nature. See, Proverbs 16, 28 says this, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Anybody know a whisperer? Gets off in somebody's ears? Reminds you a whole lot of Genesis 3, the accuser, the serpent, the adversary. Listen, a whisperer that separates close friends is nothing that comes from the Lord. Gossip, slander, factions are not from the Lord. A dishonest man, a foolish man, an arrogant man spreads strife. And listen, if there's a lot of gossip or conflict, you need to know that didn't happen by accident. It follows you. And the reason it follows you is because you continue to sow seeds into those things. You are sowing discord. It is not from the Lord. Can I just tell you? It is not a characteristic that you should delight in. It will not look beautiful on you. Let me say it one more time. Ladies, gentlemen, it will not look beautiful on you. Sowing discord is disastrous. It's like two ships colliding in the Black Sea. It will cause death and destruction. Charles Bridges, a great theologian, says this, of the heavenly dew descends upon the brethren that dwell together in unity, which means prosperous or, or good things from God. He says a withering blast or a frozen blast will fall on those who mistaking prejudice for principle cause divisions for their own selfish ends. And a lot of us cause divisions because we're blame shifters with critical spirits who defend ourselves in self-reliance and pride and we keep the enemy uh, in our circle and we keep the Lord at bay. What a challenge. Romans 16, verse 17 to 18, Paul writes to the church of Rome. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Beware of the whisperer, is what he says. And then he says this, verse 18, For such persons do not serve our Lord, but their own appetites. And smooth talk and flattery, they deceive their hearts and they're naive. And they're naive. Now look, at, when you see verse 18, and it says, they don't serve the Lord. So gospers, slanderers, self-centered people, blame shifters, critical spirits, they're not serving the Lord. And then it says, but their own appetites. You know what I think about? Listen, lean in with me. I think about Proverbs chapter 30, an adulterous woman who wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Hager says they're the same. The natural part is the tendency for a man to live in flesh just as an eagle soars above the sky. The natural part of a man to live in foolishness and folly and arrogance is to produce subtle ways that are just like a, sn a snake slithering around the ground. He goes, you need to be careful. Don't be an adul adulteress who wipes your list and goes, what have I done wrong? Don't be a blame shifter. And listen, it happens in subtle ways that if we're not asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, we will walk in arrogance and foolishness and we'll lead our life, our marriage, our families, our church family to death and not even realize it. And so may this be our prayer as we close. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, which just simply says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. God, may God make that our prayer. Like, Lord, if there's anything wicked in me, God, if I'm self-centered, if I'm grumbling and complaining from the time I get up to the time I go to bed, if I, if I just maliciously look at other people and I look down on them or I, I seem to be sowing discord in subtle ways, God, would you remove that from my life? Can I tell you that one of the things that I prayed that the Lord would keep me sober from is my own self-centeredness. 
There's some of you in here that you need to go 24 hours sober from a critical spirit. You need to go, God, help me. I'm critical. Give me 24 hours, Lord, and I'll trust you with the next 24 hours after that. There's some of you, you need to do it, and you're blame shifting. Like instead of you continue to blame everybody else, you need to go, God, would you point out everything in me? As we like to say in regeneration or in uh, re-engage ministry, we, we would say, hey, put the hula hoop on you and ask God to fix what's inside. For 24 hours, you just go, God, fix me. Quit making me believe the lie that my problem is somebody else's. Isn't that good stuff? And so may the Lord speak to our hearts. May he reveal grievous and anxious ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to walk in humility. And Lord, by your spirit and by your grace, would you train us to be men and women, boys and girls that look to you for our help. God, it is by the help of God only that I can walk according to your ways, your statutes and your commands. Lord, I am prone. I am foolish to leave the God I love. And I can do it in subtle ways that many of my friends here would never see in my life, but the Spirit convicts me of. And Lord, I'm so thankful that your word, it, it divides to the joint and the marrow. When I got everybody else fooled, everybody else faked out, there's a God in heaven I cannot hide from. And so Lord, I pray I wouldn't pretend to do that now. So Lord, if there's anything in me, anxious, grievous, Lord, would you remove it? And would you lead me to our path of everlasting life? God, would you help me to not be an adulteress who wipes my lips and go, God, what have I done wrong? Lord, because I know that in my natural flesh, that's what I'm prone to do. And so, Lord, would you help me to live by your spirit? And would you enable me to do what's right by the help of my God? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.